has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Can you imagine feeling like your nerves were doused in gasoline and lit on fire? That's how our first guest, Susan Green, describes the pain of Lyme disease. Many patients with active disease or the chronic form of the disease called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome develop pain. It ranges from flu-like headaches, muscle and joint aches, to shooting pain down the arms, muscle spasms, or widespread arthritis. It can even attack our ability to think, remember, and sleep. All of this from a tiny tick bite that we may not have even noticed. It can be frightening, but the pain can be controlled, and we'll find out how from both of our guests. Susan Green is a litigator who suffered from Lyme disease for at least 20 years. At one point, she was bedridden with intense burning pain, lost the ability to speak, and lost her memory. Quite remarkably, she overcame it all, and will share just how she did it. Then Dr. John Aucott, Lyme disease expert an infectious disease specialist from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine joins us. He'll share the latest in diagnosis, treatment with antibiotics, and managing the chronic pain of Lyme disease. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, My Life Patient Program, and DC2 Healthcare, and The Pain Community. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Susan Green is an attorney and general legislative counsel to National Capital Lyme Association. She joins us to share her journey with the pain of Lyme disease. Susan, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've had several tick bites over the last 20 years. When did your first symptoms occur? I didn't realize that I had Lyme for two decades. It started probably back in 1996, 1997. I was more fatigued than than I had been. Mm-hmm. That was the year that I gave birth to my son, so I didn't pay much attention to it. Right. 2006, I started losing my memory to a good degree. Went for an MRI for my brain. I thought I certainly had to have something wrong with my brain. Mm-hmm. And I started to notice that, like, my left eye would spasm a great deal, and the MRI was within normal limits. And December of 2006 was when I first became completely disabled with Lyme disease. It must have been terrifying to have experienced some minor fatigue at one point, and then 10 years later realize that you're losing your memory and that you become completely disabled. Susan, did you experience the the characteristic bullseye rash, medically known as uh, erythema migrans? 
I did, actually. I saw, over the years, I saw about four tick bites and, in fact, was told by a doctor to look for a rash. I was told that if I didn't have a rash, I didn't have to worry about it, that I didn't have Lyme disease, which, of course, I now know that the rash appears in less than 50% of the cases. And so had I known then what I know now, I would have probably started antibiotics right away. Mm -hmm. You know, the ticks, the deer tick is so tiny that it looks like a period at, at the end of a sentence. And so it's really easy to go undetected. But I did happen to see mine um, a couple of times, and I you know, was concerned, and I felt so relieved when I never developed a bullseye rash. I had no idea that you could still contract Lyme without a bullseye rash. Exactly. At some point after the tick bit you, what kind of symptoms did you experience? I don't feel pain. Typically, I have a huge threshold for pain. Mm-hmm. But I came down with a burning sensation of pain as if someone had doused all my muscles and nerve endings in gasoline and set them on fire. Wow. And I remember saying in the middle of the night one night, I remember asking to be taken to the hospital or to be shot. And I told uh, the person I was speaking to that I didn't care which, whatever was easier. I just, I was in so much pain, I, I couldn't bear it. And yeah. By February, I uh, had a seizure, lost my ability to speak. I lost use of both my hands. I looked like I had late-stage Parkinson's. Everything was twitching, and I couldn't, I couldn't write. I couldn't keyboard. Mm. And my memory was wiped out to the point where when I'd get to the bottom of the driveway, I couldn't remember what was left or what was right, so I was completely housebound. That's terrible. And I'm sure that those listening could never imagine that a small tick bite could result in such disabling symptoms. How was Lyme disease ultimately diagnosed? I had three tests for Lyme disease. They were all negative, and the doctors reassured me I didn't have Lyme. Mm-hmm. But by February, I was so sick, all my hair fell out. And at this point, once I had been to all these different doctors, they were starting to tell me that it was either menopause or, psych- or psychological, and I knew I was sick. Yeah. Where I called a friend who had Lyme disease, and I said, okay, how do I get out of the hormonally imbalanced, you know, psych patient and get someone to really listen to me? I know I'm sick. This person who knows me as an attorney for many years said to me, oh, my God, you're crying. And I said, yes, I'm crying. And she said, you don't cry. And I was like, I know. So anyhow, she um, sent me to an infectious disease doctor who um, once again reassured me I didn't have Lyme disease. You should have heard the diagnosis. I wish I kept a list, but I said to him, look, I'm begging you. I said, give me antibiotics. And I said, if I'm wrong, I'll suffer the consequences by myself silently, but if I'm right, you might save my life. And he says, well, you know, he said, you're very hysterical. And he said, I'm going to give you another Lyme test just to reassure you you don't have this. And I'll never forget, he called me 6.30 in the morning on a Wednesday. And he told me that uh, I was off the charts. And I had just had a negative test 11 days earlier. Wow. And back then I didn't know that the test can yield false negatives over 60% of the time. All those times I was testing, you know, I had had Lyme for many, many years and didn't realize mm-hmm. it. And then what happened? The doctor was kind of blown away because I really was very, very reactive at that point. And um, I was uh, started on a, a heavy regimen of antibiotics. I remember the doctor leaning over and saying that he couldn't treat me anymore because he was concerned. Um, there's a, it's very polarized politically, Lyme disease, and he was afraid to treat me because he belonged to the Infectious Disease Society. And he, I remember him pushing 
uh, antibi- like antibiotic prescriptions across the desk and whispering to me, Dad, he couldn't see me anymore, but I was a very sick woman and I was going to need a lot of help. I'm very sorry to hear that. And it seems like it was a difficult situation for both of you. That is, I think that the Infectious Disease Society of America doesn't recommend long-term antibiotics for Lyme disease. And long-term, I think, is somewhere around 28 days or longer, maybe due to the risk of drug resistance and, and a lack of evidence. But patients with chronic Lyme syndrome who benefit certainly disagree. And Susan, what did you eventually do then if you couldn't get treated by the infectious disease specialist at that time? I wound up seeing a multitude of doctors of different disciplines and was just very, very fortunate to find some of the best doctors out there and tried a lot of different things before I I began a path to recovery. Well, I'm certainly glad that you uh, found a path to recovery. Uh, Susan, before that, how long did you experience that searing, burning pain and were you relegated to the bed? Um, I would say, you know, I'll tell you that the first year of treatment, year and a half of treatment is kind of a blur, but I would say that a good part of that first year, I was in a lot of pain. I can tell you that I see people, particularly on my Facebook, once a month, twice a month, I see people commit suicide because they're they're in so much pain. Wow, that's a long, long time to suffer. And you're highlighting what's not particularly recognized about chronic pain, and that is that suicide is a definite risk, which is tragic. Susan, what did you do to feel better? Well, it was a combination of Motrin and antibiotics because I was on just huge, huge, huge volumes of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. I don't personally use, but I have a lot of, of friends and associates who definitely find medical marijuana to be helpful. Well, well, I mean, what else did you use? Because it seems like if you were in that much intense pain that, that you may need an opioid, for example, or, or other medications to help reduce the pain. Um, diet. I had to get rid of all the flour, wheat, and sugar, all gluten from my diet. That's huge. So nutrition was really important. You need to have a, a comprehensive overall treatment of your entire body. And as you're taking these antibiotics, which were like, they were essential in reducing my pain. Mm-hmm. And as I was taking these huge volumes of antibiotics, of course, you're doing destruction to your digestive process. Right. I mean, and speaking of the traditional therapies, I do have patients uh, in whom I use medications like um, pregabalin, known as Lyrica, or gabapentin, which is known as Neurontin, or some of the antidepressant medications that we that we use to treat pain. Did you use any of those, or did you focus more on some of the complementary and alternative medicine therapies? I also did hyperbaric oxygen, mm-hmm. two-hour dives for 72 days in a row, and that was tremendously helpful to me. Infrared sauna, it's so important to stay positive. Good, yes, I agree. You know, we'll find out much more about the therapies that made a difference in Susan's life and led to her recovery on our next show. Coming up next is Dr. John Ocott, Lyme disease expert. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit TameThePain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Teva, a leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Health is a leading health solutions company that delivers accurate, timely, clinical actionable information to inform the right treatment decisions for each patient at the right time. Millennium offers a comprehensive suite of services to better tailor patient care. More information is available at www.millenniumhealth.com. 
My Life Patient Program, and DC2 Healthcare, connecting patients to top physicians in the United States, reaching the highest standard of patient care through research patient programs and gains in overall health. For more information, please visit mylifepatientproject.com and dc2healthcare.com. Welcome back. Dr. John Aucott is an assistant professor, Division of Rheumatology, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's currently leading a study on the chronic form of the disease called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, examining pain, fatigue, and biomarkers for prognosis after treatment. Dr. Aucott, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thanks. Recently, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention increased the estimate of the annual number of new cases of Lyme disease in the United States from something like 30,000 to 300,000. Why? It occurred because of the limitations of standard case reporting mm-hmm. to your state health department and then the CDC. The, the newer study looked actually at laboratory claims data, looking more at how physicians are coding claims for laboratory testing. Yeah. And, and when you do that, you you get a different picture. And it, it coincides with what we suspected is that there's really five to tenfold more cases than the CDC has reported. Wow. I mean, that's quite an increase. John, will you give us an overview of, of how we get Lyme disease? So Lyme disease is a tick-borne disease. That means it's transmitted. It has to be transmitted by the bite of a tick. And the reservoir for the bacteria that causes Lyme disease is our small mammals, especially small you know, rodents like mice. Mm-hmm. And the reservoir is where the bacteria lives. So that the bacteria whose name is Borrelia burgdorferi in North America lives in, in mice primarily. And the tick is the vector that transmits it from the mice to the uh, human or other animal that it bites the next time during its feeding cycle. Mm -hmm. That's a great explanation. So it's the bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi that you mentioned that actually lead to the infection called Lyme disease. John, you know, I read that the chance of developing Lyme disease from a tick bite is pretty small, somewhere along the lines of uh, 3.5%. Per tick bite, correct. But, uh, you know, people get multiple tick bites. So the lifetime risk depends on where you live and how many tick bites you get. But per tick bite, it's like 2 to 3%. That's correct. Mm-hmm. People that have outdoor jobs or avid gardeners, you know, could get multiple tick bites every summer, summer after summer after summer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of like getting in a car accident. The more you drive, you know, eventually it's going to get you. <laughs> yes, that's, that's pretty frightening. Uh, John, what about the rash, the characteristic bullseye rash? Because it seems like certainly not everyone gets the rash. 70 to 80% of people, by some estimates, get a rash. But actually, the majority of the rashes aren't even a bullseye. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're looking for the, the target lesion on the side of the target department store, you'll only pick up about 20% of the rashes. Oh. The majority are actually uniformly round or oval, but uniformly red, not that ring within a ring target department store sign. Yeah. And so we commonly see misdiagnoses in patients that thought that the rash, their single migraines rash, was a spider bite or a bug bite because... They say, well, it didn't have the target appearance, and that's actually a, a big source of missed early diagnoses because uh, they, the patient, and sometimes doctors too, think that it has to be that target appearance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has led to some of the underreporting that we talked about earlier. 
Dr. Akat, where is the rash usually seen on the body? You know, it's in areas where physicians wouldn't typically think of having other types of skin eruptions. For instance, typically behind the back of the knee, armpits, groin, areas where the ticks like to lodge mm-hmm. because the rash occurs at where the tick stops to feed on the human host. Of course, the tick doesn't want to be found and removed, so it knows how to hide. <laughs> right, exactly. What's the best method of diagnosing Lyme disease today? The best way is the accurate identification of that erythema migrans rash because the currently available blood tests, which are based on um, antibody responses, mm-hmm. they're called serologies, those typically don't turn positive till you know, several weeks into the infection. So if you're waiting for the serology to turn positive, you're, you're going to miss the first few weeks of infection. Well, John, if, the, if it's too early and the test is not positive, then what do you do? So if you miss it and and then repeat the serology in the three to six week area, you'll start to pick up most of the infections. And then after mm-hmm. six weeks, then you pick up almost all the infections. Okay. Um, there's one caveat that's in people that haven't been put on antibiotics. So that's the kind of natural immune response of the serology in untreated people. Um, once you introduce antibiotics in the first few weeks of infection, then the immune response becomes very, very and and so um, repeat blood tests after treatment are sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Okay, and that's because if you're treated early with antibiotics, then the immune system produces lower levels of antibodies that are often too low to be detected by the test, probably, we think, due to the early shutdown of the infection. John, I've heard that there are inaccuracies to the test. What are they? It's not a great test. I mean, by its nature, it's a test that's looking for the antibody immune response to the infection. Mm -hmm. And so it lacks the properties of a test that we would prefer, which looks for the actual infection. In other words, you know, if you get a urine infection, you you actually culture the bacteria that causes the urine infection. In Lyme disease, we cannot culture the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So the big limitation of the test is it doesn't act as a test of cure. In other words, repeating the Lyme test doesn't tell you you're cured because you're not looking for the actual infection. You're just looking at the antibody responses, Mm -hmm. which may or may not persist. We we really need a test that actually identifies the actual bacteria so we know when it's there and then we know when it's gone after treatment so we know the person's cured. That test is not available yet. Well, are there any tests like that in development? Um, There's different people looking at different ways to look at, you know, Borrelia antigens as a surrogate for culture. Uh Um, The organ is very difficult to culture. It's related to syphilis. It's a spirochete, and spirochetes are difficult to culture. In fact, syphilis can't be cultured to this day. Mm-hmm. And Borrelia, Lyme disease uh, agent, is also really hard to culture. There's really only a few labs in the United States, which are all research labs that can culture it. Well, what makes it so hard to identify? You know, you get small numbers of bacteria, especially in the later stages. Mm-hmm. And so to find them is becomes really, it's, in essence, finding the proverbial needle in the haystack. Okay, so ex- extremely difficult then. We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Alcott about what to do once you're diagnosed with Lyme disease, and then a little bit about the controversy over the duration of antibiotic therapy. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org 
for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives. Reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back. We're here speaking with Dr. John Aucott, Lyme disease expert and infectious disease specialist. Dr. Aucott, talk to us about what to do for treatment for Lyme disease and how long treatment is recommended. The bacteria is treated with antibiotics, typically doxycycline in adults or amoxicillin in children under the age of 12. Okay. Now, I know there's controversy with respect to the duration of antibiotic therapy, but help our listeners understand what the current medical recommendations are. Sure. Again, it depends whether we're talking about untreated Lyme disease or post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Mm -hmm. The controversial area is how to treat people that that have this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Right. And there's really currently, there's no FDA-approved treatment for those that group of individuals. Mm -hmm. And that's where it becomes very controversial because some individuals believe that retreatment with antibiotics and sometimes with prolonged courses of antibiotics may be important to treat those people where other groups feel strongly that there's no evidence that prolonged retreatment with antibiotics is beneficial. Okay. So the current Infectious Diseases Society guidelines of the United States does not recommend prolonged retreatment with antibiotics for post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, but that's one of the big areas that's debated currently. Before we talk about post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, let me ask you about the acute disease, acute Lyme disease, that is. What do patients say about their pain? The people that have the rash and are febrile with a fever, they generally have flu-like achiness. That pain is bad, but it goes away within a a few days to a week. Mm -hmm. So even though it's a bad pain, people generally can manage that with ibuprofen or Aleve because it's going to get better as the antibiotics kick in and work. Right. And most patients with, with acute Lyme disease infection recover completely. On the other hand, we have a growing number of reports of patients uh, who have the chronic form of Lyme disease called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, in which case the residual symptoms can last for months or even years. A lot of these patients report things like musculoskeletal pain, fatigue, and, and neurocognitive difficulties, anything from you know, brain fog to, to seizures. In some cases, it looks exactly like uh, fibromyalgia. In fact, investigators early on described patients that had Lyme disease and got treated, but then ended up with fibromyalgia pain syndrome. Mm-hmm. And then the second kind of pain is more neuropathic pain. Um, Lyme disease can involve both large and small fiber nerves and can cause painful neuropathy-type symptoms, numbness, tingly, pinpricky, you know, hypersensitivity so it has different qualities to the patient. Absolutely. And, and our previous guest, Susan, described that vividly well, with respect to the burning pain she felt throughout her nerves when she was suffering from Lyme disease. You know, it's been suggested that there may be an underreporting of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome cases to the Centers for Disease Control. So we really may be looking at a higher number of cases of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome than we actually thought. And, and so really, there may be a quite a serious public health problem related to this syndrome. John, I've also read that about 10 to 20% of patients with Lyme disease go on to have symptoms that, that can last for months to years after treatment. Do you see that in your practice? Um, that's actually 
data that we reported from our prospective studies. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of fatigue, um, pain, and then also cognitive complaints like okay. trouble with focusing and concentrating. Those are kind of the three cardinal symptoms of this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I have some patients who whose lives are completely impaired. I mean, they just can't function due to this syndrome. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but please join us for part two to discover the stages of Lyme disease, what to look for if you have post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and the therapies that can get you back on track. Dr. Alcott, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Aches and Gains. My pleasure. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.